He got a tip from the bartender that he was going to be seeing some action. Rudy hid the gun in the drum case, and they're up there playing, and he sees this biker come in, lock eyes with him, and Rudy knew what was about to happen. So Rudy slides down onto his knees, grabs the gun, and shoots first. I mean, it's, a te it's actually a terrible thing. <laughs> Hey, what's up, everybody? Keith Billick here. Welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Tis the season to start your holiday shopping. And might I recommend to you a one-stop shop for everyone on your holiday gift list. That is at banjopodcast.com, where you can get the world-famous official Picky Fingers t-shirts and Picky Fingers stickers. And you know what? They are much more reasonably priced than some silly playstation or bicycle or whatever else people think they're asking for what they really want are those t-shirts and stickers so once again head over to banjopodcast.com there's still time to get yours and have them uh in your hands or stockings or wherever they might need to go uh before the holidays get here and as a side benefit, when you order those, you have the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting your favorite podcast, which is always so much appreciated. Speaking of supporting the show, today we have to thank our special Patreon supporter of the episode, and that is Tim Burns. Tim is a beginner out in California, and he is doing everything he can to absorb all of the banjo knowledge through taking Wernick jam classes, subscribing to various online instructional platforms, and most importantly, listening to and supporting the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. So Tim, I thank you so much for your support. It really helps and I appreciate it. And for those of you who don't know, head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. You can sign up to throw me a few dollars per month to help keep the lights on here at Picky Fingers HQ. And you also get some really cool rewards in exchange. Now, I want to talk about one of those rewards is that uh, you get invited to a monthly video meetup with me and your fellow Picky Fingers VIP listeners. That's the very important pickers. But uh, I'm in the mood to spread some holiday cheer. So we are doing this month's, that's uh, December 2022, uh, VIP Lounge is going to be open to all listeners, regardless of Patreon subscriber status. So if you want to meet me for this month's VIP Lounge, you are going to want to mark your calendars for Wednesday, December 28th at 8 o'clock p.m. That's Eastern Standard Time. And you are going to want to head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. There will be a public post with the Google Meet link to join that video meetup. And I hope to see many of you there, banjos in hands, and maybe even showing off some of those uh, Picky Fingers t-shirts that you ordered for the holidays as well. So one more time, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Or you can also reach out to me by email, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com, or feel free to track me down on any of the uh, social medias. I'm out there. You'll be able to find it. featured guest is Max Wareham. Max learned banjo studying with Bill Keith and Tony Trishka and now performs as part of bluegrass legend Peter Rowan's band. He has also taken it upon himself to publish an exhaustive book on the banjo player Rudy Lyle, who is one of uh, Bill Monroe's early banjo players and most recorded banjo players and yet remains uh, largely overlooked at least compared to uh, such contemporaries such as Earl Scruggs and Don Reno and, uh, and all those names that we all know. The book is fantastic. He put a ton of work into it, and it really shows his dedication to the instrument in general and his respect for the traditions of the music. And I think all of those things come through during this interview. I will mention that this was another IBMA trade show interview, so there is a bit of 
background noise, which I tried to minimize with my special magic audio tricks. But uh, just a heads up about that, so hopefully that doesn't distract too much. So at any rate, give a warm picky fingers welcome to Max Wareham. First of all, thanks for having me. It's really, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, get to right hang on. and talk with you. Uh, so yeah, I'm a banjo player. Um, play with the Peter Rowan Bluegrass Band, and uh, recorded with him on his most recent album, "Calling You from My Mountain." I arrived at the banjo in a sort of circuitous way. I started out playing piano, actually, hmm. and um, as a teenager, I got into blues guitar and jazz guitar. And I was living in New York, studying jazz guitar. Is that where you grew up? I grew up in Connecticut, actually. Okay. Not not exactly the um, the hub of banjo music. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, maybe now it will be now, now may, that you've brought it there. Well, there are, yeah, there are a few. Yeah, there's there's a pretty good scene now, actually. Cool. I was living in New York when I was 18, uh, studying jazz guitar, mm -hmm. and I was walking through Union Square one day, and I heard some street musicians playing, and one of them had a banjo. And the sound hit me like a bolt of lightning. Is that and the first time you recall hearing a banjo, or at least in person, maybe? Yeah, that was the first time. Wow. And everything changed. The, the molecules in my brain <laughs> rearranged slightly. <laughs> and, for for uh, better or worse. For, yeah. yeah. Us banjo both. players are often accused of having maybe some non-typical brain <laughs> configurations. So I think you're just confirming it. Yeah, highly non-typical. So yeah, then I, I mean, I, I changed my direction in life at that point and um, sought out some of the, the banjo players in the Northeast. Um, mm -hmm. I, I studied early on with Bill Keith. And for me, coming from jazz, I mean, Bill was a, an absolute genius when it comes to music theory. Yeah. He just had so many incredible ideas. Yeah. And in his house, he had a lot of clocks hanging on the walls. Um, but every single clock was, instead of one through 12, it was just the circle of fifths. <laughs> <laughs> he was always thinking about music. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I was lucky enough to pick his brain just you know surface level and mm. yeah even that much you could tell that he can he can go on and on about the stuff it's it's just a constant thing with him yeah, yeah so i mean we we skipped over a few things but it sounds like after you had that experience of hearing the banjo player it sounds like you went right out and bought one and like yeah. started diving in yeah well it's a funny thing i i went up to her and i asked her i said tell me about that banjo yeah she was from north carolina and she said, it's a tinner banjo. Okay. And I'm a Yankee. And so I thought, tinner banjo. So I went home and I typed in T-I-N-N-E-R banjo <laughs> to Google. And I found nothing. Yeah. And I realized she said tenor. Uh-huh. So actually, my first banjo was a tenor banjo. Interesting. And I didn't know any better, really. Okay. And did you have a clue of like what kind of music you were trying to play with it or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, I had, um, it was all sort of serendipitous timing. After that first year in New York, I, I came home to Connecticut for the summer. And the first night I was back, I was sitting on my front porch, uh, wondering, you know, what the summer was going to hold for me, mm. thinking about where I could find a job, find some work. And in that instant, this minivan comes tearing down the road and pulls right into my driveway and from out of it come the Stevens family, who are this family, uh, friends of mine in, in the town I grew up in. Okay. And 
all brothers and sisters, a pretty big family, and yeah. they're all very, very musical. And they came out, and Todd Stevens handed me a tenor banjo, and he said, I have good news. I got you a job working at the deli with me, and you're going to join our family band. <laughs> so it fell in my lap, you know. Yeah, how interesting. So they, they must have had a clue that you were pursuing something like that, or, or this was really just dumb luck. I can't recall exactly, but I remember it being uh, serendipitous yeah. that it happened that way. So at some, by the time you studied with Bill, I mean, Bill did dabble also in some, like, plectrum banjo too, I think. But yeah. I, I imagine by the time you studied with him, were you on five string? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd sorted it out by then. <laughs> I would love to hear uh, as much as you care to remember or talk about or demonstrate. I would love to hear the types of things that Bill went over with you. and Sure. Uh, Maybe the things that you still carry with you from his instruction. Oh, sure. He was really into Pythagoras and considering different frequencies of notes. I mean, it was really heady stuff. I recorded everything. I mean, you, you've seen the, the famous Carlton Haney <laughs> video, of course, right? I have. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Turns out he was onto something, I think, in some strange way. We covered a lot of ground in our time together, but one of the things that struck me most about Bill's work that hasn't been so widely heard, I mean, of course, the, everyone knows the melodic style. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows his playing, um, the Scruggs book. Yeah. Um, but one thing that he had come up with that wasn't so widely heard were a bunch of uh, jazz arrangements like chord melodies mm -hmm. on the banjo yeah um and he just had dozens of these yeah that was interesting to me i mean i i think that i'm i'm mostly interested in like older banjo styles early bluegrass uh, and that sort of thing but coming from jazz guitar uh when i heard these jazz chord melody arrangements i was really taken with them i thought mm. they were just so so gorgeous and so actually Bill and I were talking late in his life about um, me recording an album of these arrangements that he'd come up with okay. and having him sort of oversee it and basically produce it. Right. Uh, and so I learned a handful of these that he just played for me and I recorded. Um, and unfortunately, he passed before that project could happen. But, um, but here's his arrangement <clears throat> of the old jazz standard Cherokee. Oh, and this yeah, is cool. pretty close to how he played it. Let's see about this. throw in a lick like um, there's some kind of and then come back around yeah cool so anyway there's there's Cherokee yeah that's a beautiful version I usually just hear that as like a fast kind of bebop uh, tune I don't think I've heard it like that before that's yeah. really cool yeah I had never heard it slow like a ballad like that either um, but I think it, it works it's, oh, it's, it's a really yeah, it's pretty a lovely arrangement so what about this Pythagoras stuff? What, oh, what, uh, teach me about this. Well, you know, A is 440. Sure. So he was thinking about frequencies like that yeah. and uh, Pythagoras' idea of the overtone series. 
really to talk about it i'd have to go back and listen to the recordings that i made of of our time together and, and really try to get my head around it in okay. general what if you remember this maybe without getting into specifics what types of things does that inform him about knowing the frequency and overtone mm -hmm. series like how, how does that affect how he approached music or maybe even how you have come to approach music mm. i think it informed his understanding of just the, the underlying structures of music you know like how harmony functions why okay. one chord sounds good going to another or how to extend the the tensions that resolve yeah um, so it's not a very palpable thing it's, it's pretty heady <laughs> Yeah. Um, but this is good. This is inspiring me to go back through those recordings and really sort it out. Oh, man. Yeah. How many is this like hours and hours and hours of? Yeah. Of several recordings? hours. Oh, yeah. that's so great. Yeah. So how much of the, I mean, that's pretty advanced. I'm getting the feeling that you were still like a beginning player. Obviously, you'd had jazz instruction. So you're your mind and your hands kind of knew some things, but yeah. I mean, for a beginning banjo player to be absorbing this, that's like a big, <laughs> a tall order, you know? It was a lot. It was pretty mind blowing, but it was my way in, you know, it was, yeah. um, it made sense to me having studied jazz harmony mm -hmm. and that was my way in to understand some of those similar concepts on the banjo. Is that what you wanted to play like? Was that a, a goal of yours? At that time it was, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but I didn't know any better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, so what, I mean, what other players were you, were you digging? Were you really absorbing all you could about, about banjo? What were yeah. you, what were you exploring? I was just, I had an insatiable appetite. I was just listening to everything. I, I got in touch with Tony Trishka uh, and he became a, a great teacher to me and a good friend and a mentor. Yeah. And Tony is really the person who showed me how to play banjo. I mean, Bill Keith showed me the, the, the ideas and these sort of um, uh, concepts that could yeah. be associated with it. And I was studying his playing a ton. But Tony's the guy who sat me down and said, Foggy Mountain Banjo, mm -hmm. learn it. Here's the Scruggs book, learn it. You know, and he really, um, he showed me how to play the banjo, really. I mean, basically the same question I asked about Bill Keith, I would love to hear about Tony what sort of things he showed you and what you think is important that you carry with you from from yeah. his days. Yeah, he, sh he showed me a lot, really. he, You know, a big part of what he showed me was how to play bluegrass banjo, which is a pretty big umbrella. Sure. But something uh, my buddy Chris Henry said to me recently was, bluegrass music is, the secret of bluegrass music is that it's not actually about the music, it's about the people. Wow. That's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to understand that. But but one thing, one really special thing that Tony showed me was um, was just a real deep sense of generosity and kindness. Hmm. I would go for a lesson every week. I'd get on the train and go down to Times Square in New York and meet him in his, uh, actually in this office that he was borrowing from a friend of his who wasn't working there late at night. And our lessons would start around uh, 8.30 at night or so. Mm -hmm. And we agreed on an hour lesson, but oftentimes the lessons would go until, you know, 11. Or turn into a hang. Turn into a hang. Yeah. And so I think really the most important thing that Tony showed me was just that, uh, that sense of goodwill between people through the music. Hmm. Um, Does that connect with what Chris Henry told you about mm -hmm. it being more about the people and less about the music is is that is that what you took that to mean? Yeah, yeah. Bill Monroe said bluegrass music has made more friends than any other type of music. Oh man, that might be world. true. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Whether it is true or not, I think the sentiment is true. Yeah, you know, it's a music of goodwill between people and. Um, that's a really beautiful thing, and that's I think that's one of the big things that Tony showed me. But um, and was that the first time that I mean you had this interest in jazz? Was taking lessons with Tony? Was that the first time you really started to maybe dig into the history of the of bluegrass specifically? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, he he told me Earl, Don Reno, Sonny Osborne you know, find their discographies and just listen. 
hmm. get the Bear Family box sets. It's an investment that that I didn't regret. Right, you know? right. So yeah, he he put me on the track for sure. And at what point did you finally get to a a position where you were able to play, if not quote unquote professionally, at least uh, you know, hold yourself out there as a mm. performing banjo player? What was it? Mm. What got you to that point, or what was that like well, for you? I was obsessed at that time. I'm still obsessed, but I mean, I was really obsessed yeah. then. I mean, I was practicing a lot during that time. Yeah. Actually, that was in 2010, and I was working for the census. Hmm. Walking around. I was living with my parents in my hometown at that time. And so I was walking around these old neighborhoods that I'd grown up around and knocking on the doors and counting saying, the people. Counting the people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that paid really well. It was a great, a great gig. Mm -hmm. Um, and it afforded me a lot of free time as well, sort of make your own hours. So I was practicing during that time, eight to 10 hours a day. Wow. Just going, going nuts, going just berserk. practicing all the time. Yeah. So, so I, I, I mean, I figured at that point I was, uh, maybe 19 and I figured I had a lot of catching up to do. So, yeah. So I, once I really set my mind to it, um, I started playing gigs pretty quickly i know this is a real like vague open-ended question but is there anything that you worked on that you felt became part of maybe what you now would call like your personal style and like <clears throat> if so what would that be or, or were there like skills that you worked on that maybe really allowed you to advance as a player more quickly hmm well yeah i'm, I'm not sure um one thing I've always been interested in is what happens when you move something. For instance, we've got um, the G uh, melodic scale with a flatted seventh. Mm -hmm. And then I started trying to move that around, just try to see how much of that shape I could keep the same, okay. but just move it. And then you get this so the same open strings, of course. Same open strings. But the, the fretted notes have now moved mm -hmm. up two frets, it looks like. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the shape is the same. And it creates this sort of echoing sound, yeah. which is kind of cool. And then you can just take that as an idea and start moving that around, um, trying to catch the notes from the G scale. Yeah, that's a beautiful sound. Yeah. That's really cool. So, so yeah, I was I was tuned into that type of thing, just like um, experimenting with moving things around and, and seeing what results uh, at that time. And I think, yeah, that's, that's definitely informed how I think of the banjo to this yeah. day, for sure. Yeah, that's really neat. It's making me want to go home, uh, you know, go give that a try. Sounds yeah. cool. Now, let, let me know if this is skipping ahead too far, but I read mm -hmm. somewhere, it might have been in your book it might have been on your website or something like that that you were able to spend a bit of time with with peter rowan early on and of course he's your boss now but yeah. uh he plays a part in your history also right of learning absolutely okay yeah peter's been my greatest teacher absolutely yeah tell me about that how did you how did you hook up with a guy like that so um when i was first getting into the banjo I was talking to my folks about it, and my mom said, well, you know, Dad's cousin is a bluegrass musician. And she said, his name's Peter Rowan. You should check him out. Peter Ro You're related to Peter Rowan? Uh-huh. That's yeah. incredible, and you d didn't have didn't, a clue about this. I didn't know. I met him when I was a baby, I think. But, I, I mean, <laughs> he was out on the West Coast. I yeah. was on the East Coast. We never, we never met. So I, the banjo came to me independently. And so then I started listening to Olden in the Way and just, you know. And that's like... What would he be? To, is that a cousin once removed or something like that to it's you? Something like that. I figured it out once, and I'm not sure I did it right, but yeah, his grandmother like is my great-grandmother. He and my dad oh, are right. second cousins. Okay. Sometimes in bluegrass, we say uncle and nephew, just to simplify. He's kin. He's kin. We'll, we'll just put it like that. We're kin folks. <laughs> <laughs> so... I had gotten his phone number from uh, another family member, and uh, at a certain point, I just said, I've got to go to the West Coast and learn from mm -hmm. Peter. 
And so I, uh, I started calling him. And I say I started calling him because he never picked up. Oh. So I would call, leave a message. Next week, call, leave a message. I never heard from him. And it just became my ritual. Yeah. Each Tuesday, I would call him and leave a message. And I never expected him to pick up because I just got used to calling and leaving a message. Yeah. And uh, one day he picked up. And I was totally caught off guard. You're not yeah, you're not prepared for that. Yeah. Uh, but I said, Peter, it's Max. I'd love to, to come visit you and, and learn from you if that's okay. And he said, yeah, come on out. Wow. So uh, I went out there and uh, spent about a month in the Bay Area in San Francisco uh -huh. uh, with him. And uh, while I was out there, I was also tracking down all the banjo players out there, like Keith Little, mm -hmm. Bill Evans, and Avram Siegel. Just taking as many lessons as I could from these guys, just trying to learn. Folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction, and at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots Music. Check out the courses they have, and this is just for banjo. You could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Each of those courses include high-quality video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So... Go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. And it sounds like if you were studying with Peter, I don't know if he dabbles in banjo himself, but he's not known as a banjo player. I imagine that was a more like broader instruction rather than put your fingers here and, yeah. and do this role. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah. What I was, on the surface, what I was trying to learn from Peter was um, the, the bluegrass way, mm -hmm. the tradition, singing, uh, the history of it. On a deeper level, what I was unaware of at the time, but what I've since learned was like how to live it. And what is that? Like, explain, what do you mean by that? Well, when I showed up there, I had a list of questions. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean... I had it was 20 questions. Yeah. And it was all a lot of technical stuff. I was coming from almost an academic place. I'd studied music in school, so I that's how I understood it. Literally music. from an academic <laughs> place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I thought music was, mm -hmm. and um Peter was really generous and really patient with all those questions, and he answered the questions as best he could. Yeah. But he also leveled with me and said, "Look, if you want to learn to play this music, 
you do it on the bandstand. You learn on stage. And that's how he learned with Bill Monroe. Right. You learn singing into a microphone or playing into a microphone. So he started taking me around to some shows out there on the West Coast and letting me sit in for, you know, the encore or the last few songs. Oh, to his own performances, mm -hmm. you mean? Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. cool. Yeah. And so that's, that's where I learned. Yeah. You know, on stage with him. That's great that you were able to have that contrast because as opposed to your college education and, and Bill, who is much more of a cerebral guy, I don't know Peter personally, but he definitely has the vibe of someone who is a bit more, um, I don't know what the word would be, feely rather than academic and numbers and Pythagoras. Totally. Kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Peter's got the feeling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's cool. And so at what point did he, did you get to the point where he was hiring you full time, like to, to the gig that you have now? Well, it was a slow, it was a slow uh, progression. Um, whenever he would come out to the East Coast, he would say, hey, I've got this show, you should come sit in. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did that for several years. Um, and uh, there was one tour he had where my buddy Eric Lee, who's a great fiddler in Western Mass, he and I followed Peter around. Okay. This whole tour through the Northeast and the East Coast. And uh, he would have us as like a duo sit in with him. Oh, that's uh, cool. Maybe for more like half of the set. So, yeah. you know, over the years it would generally progress. And then it got to the point where I'd be playing with him for a festival here or a festival there. We played Gray Fox and um, Bean Blossom. Yeah. Um, and uh, December of 2019... He said, let's, um, let's record an album. It's time. With and you I, as part yeah, of the band. Yeah. And I thought, oh, man, this is so cool. Yeah. And so we had plans to go down to Nashville and record. Um, and would this end up being like your first <clears throat> studio experience, at least with the banjo? Yeah, with the banjo. It would have been my first studio experience. Wow. And I say would have been because you know what happened in January of 2020. Oh, I think I've heard of this. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think I've heard about something. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was canceled. It was foiled. It was foiled. Dang it. So that didn't happen. But in um, the fall of 2021... Uh, we did go. We did go to the studio and we recorded. And it ended up being a totally different band, and a totally different album, totally different batch of songs. Wow! Um, and that was "Calling You from My Mountain." And at that point, um, I had joined the band. From my mountain to your mountain, from my mountain so high. Also, I just have to say, disclaimer, I don't take uh, one day for granted having this connection with Peter, this family connection. I, I take it as a really special privilege, and it's something that I've tried to uh, to own up to with, with how much work I'm putting towards it. And uh, Yeah, it seems I like you have a, a, a ton of respect for it, and I can, I can attest, having seen you perform, that you're not, uh, you're not just window dressing. You're definitely... F fitting your part great and you sound sound awesome playing the songs well thank so, you so thank you yeah it's good it's good that you appreciate it but yeah you it seems like you've earned it also i appreciate so that's that. cool yeah i mean unless i'm missing something i would love to transition to your research into rudy lyle at what point did did he start blipping on your radar yeah and, and what about him captured your attention to the to the point where you you know, devoted yourself to a big project. Or uh, actually, let me back up. What, uh, give us, you know, the whole point of your research into him is that he's like an under, uh, an unsung 
Banjo Hero. Yeah. And he's not around anymore for me to be able to interview. So maybe be be a advocate for Rudy Lyle. Why? Uh, oh. Who who was he, and why should people care about him? Yeah. Well, Rudy Lyle recorded more with Bill Monroe during the early days of bluegrass than any banjo player, by hmm. far. In fact, he recorded more. So that's including Scruggs and Reno. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, there's only one banjo player that recorded more with Monroe, and that was Blake Williams, Monroe's last banjo player. <clears throat> so Rudy, I mean, if you just look at what's on paper, Rudy's really important. When, when I was in California with Peter during that time, one of the questions I asked Peter was, were you very influenced by Lester Flatt as a singer? Because Peter's a, a sort of a gentle voice in bluegrass. Yeah, he has that laid-back kind of timing. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Yeah, and for me as a banjo player, I, I was listening to Flat and Scruggs a lot. Yeah. So I, I thought, well, maybe Peter digs Lester. And I asked him, and, and Peter said, not particularly. And okay. Peter said he was more influenced by that uh, High Lonesome era, uh, the High Lonesome sound of Jimmy Martin singing with Bill Monroe. Uh, so I went home and, you know, I got I got all the CDs and listened through to it. And on all those recordings, Rudy Lyle was playing banjo. And, of course, I was tuned into that as a banjo player, listening to his licks. And yeah. I heard him playing, you know, I'd, I'd listened a lot to Scruggs and Ralph Stanley, Don Reno, and these guys. And I heard Rudy, I heard a, a sort of a different voice on the banjo. It was well within the tradition. I mean, it was during this time when I, I think that Monroe's vision kind of came into form. And he sounded different. He sounded a little bit different from Scruggs. Yeah. So he had his own vocabulary. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're saying it's within the tradition, but I think, I think it's also important to remember that that's when the tradition was developing. So he was just, he, he became part of it, right? He became part of it, yeah. And he influenced, I came to find that he influenced so many masters of the banjo that I got to interview for this book. You know, it started, well, I'll tell you, it actually started at Bean Blossom when we played there. I had a really bizarre experience, and you can, you can take what you want out of it, but take it with a grain of salt. We were on stage. Now, Bean Blossom is Monroe's festival. Right, so I was on stage at Bean Blossom, and as we were performing, I had the strangest feeling that someone was... Between the Moon Pies and that guy, I think we're at Mardi Gras or something. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Hurricane and everything. Yeah, that's Jeez. true. We're, we're there. We're in New Orleans now. <laughs> Just um, Don't try to throw beads at me. Can't promise how, <laughs> how I'll respond. Yeah. Right, so I was on stage at Bean Blossom, and that's a that's kind of a tough crowd to play for because they know they're they know what they're us. listening for. Yeah, yeah. Now, I had the sense that someone was standing behind me watching me play, and I looked over my While shoulder. While you're on stage, uh huh. Yeah, interesting. Uh -huh. Going up to the mic and taking a break. I had the sense that eyes were on me. Uh -huh. I looked over my shoulder, and no one was there. And it it didn't that feeling didn't really go away. And you know, again with a grain of salt. I felt like it was Bill, Bill Monroe, and it wasn't a good feeling. It was a very judgmental feeling. Okay. Like, who's this guy on my stage trying to play my music? Which kind of aligns with what I know about Bill's personality, or what I've heard about it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, that was, that kind of, it was sort of a jarring feeling. And um, after that set, I thought, 
I need to go deeper into the tradition. I need to really do a deep dive here if I want to be up on Bill's stage playing his music. Yeah. And so I decided, I, I said, I'm going to learn every Rudy Lyle break. Every single one? Every single one. Uh, you know, I guess I, I didn't actually come out and say it. I've, re I've referred to your Rudy Lyle project and research, but, uh, you know, I'm burying the lead. You've, you've come up with this book that is an exhaustive, I, I suppose, look at Rudy Lyle through the words of other people who knew him and were influenced by him and a lot of banjo music and tablature. So, uh -huh. yeah, it's, it's a very thorough document. It's really impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been such a great project to have. What do you think was unique about his style? And maybe even, I, I don't know if, if you're able to do this or even concentrate enough to do it, but mm. is there maybe a piece of music that you would even be able to demonstrate how, let's say, Earl Scruggs might have played something oh, and yeah, then yeah. illustrate the differences of how Rudy, what would be a Rudy-ish way to, sure. to do that? Sure, yeah. I think there's two levels that we can talk about it on. And one is um, vocabulary uh -huh. and one is process. Um, they had very, very different processes to yeah. playing the banjo. What I mean by that is like um, the way Earl Scruggs would play, especially in the studio, he would know his break before he played it. And he would play it perfectly. And it would just be like ambrosia. Just, uh -huh. You can't get better <laughs> than that. It's just the best. And that's, I think that's how banjo players typically would approach something in the studio, is to work it out. Yeah. Or what did Jimmy Martin used to say? Um, he said, you got to study it out. Jimmy Martin would say that to Bill Emerson when Bill was in his band. He said, you got to study out the break. And what he meant was come up with a break to Be play. ready to Be ready. play it, your thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's... That's typically how we as banjo players record. You know, we work out a break and then play it the best we can. Uh, Rudy wasn't doing that. He had a strong sense of the melody and knew where to play it. But each time he would do a take, it would be, he'd be putting different licks in different places. And how were you able to discover this? Well, it was all because of the, um, the complete castle studio sessions that... Um, the Richard White's archives put out. Um, oh. this, um, so you've heard different takes of the same song from the same session. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. It's this great four or five CD box set that came out uh, maybe five years ago. Wow. And um, it's everything from 49 to 51, maybe. Whoa. And it's every alternate take. So Rawhide, for instance. Uh-huh. Um, which I think is one of Rudy's masterpieces. listen to the alternate takes of that and it's amazing how different they are huh i mean he had his concepts but you can hear in each alternate take he was he was working stuff out in the moment yeah and at that tempo too it's just pretty <laughs> that, wild that's, yeah that's it's a yeah um so actually in the book i've i've transcribed every alternate take of rawhide wow and highlighted the measures in common and sort of gone through and showed the differences between each break and so tried to make a study of Rudy's process. Yeah. Now the thing behind that process is that it changes the sound. If you're playing from the seat of your pants, it's going to sound different mm -hmm. from something that's predetermined. Yeah. And In good ways and bad ways, I think. In both good yeah. and bad ways. But um, I think that Rudy Lyle was the perfect banjo player for Bill Monroe at that time, that high lonesome time because his energy matched that same 
fiery energy that Monroe was playing with at that time. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. As far as uh, specific stuff on the banjo, we all know this lick. Uh, from Earl Scruggs, and actually from Snuffy Jenkins before him. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people refer to it as the roll in my sweet baby's arms lick. Yeah, that kickoff lick, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, Rudy wasn't actually very influenced by Earl Scruggs, mm. but he was very influenced by Snuffy Jenkins. So he had his own sort of way of playing the same licks that Earl picked up from Snuffy. So they were, it, it's an interesting study, really. They're similar, but different. So instead of playing this, Rudy Lyle would play this. Okay, yeah. It's almost identical. But different roll pattern, different syncopation with exactly. where those notes come in. Exactly, cool. yeah. So when, when Earl does it, it's a forward reverse roll. When Rudy does it, it's all forward. Which I think is probably more true to Snuffy than Earl was. I would think so, yeah. Yeah, I, I need to dig a little bit deeper into Snuffy and really learn his stuff note for note, yeah. but I, I think it's closer to what yeah, Snuffy would have Yeah, I'm not speaking from doing. authority either, but I think my understanding is that he was a more forward roll, all the time kind of player. Yeah, yeah. So that right there is just one one way that Rudy would do something differently. Yeah, but cool. But one, one thing about that lick, it's, it's a proto-melodic lick. Right, yeah. I say proto-melodic, it's like an it suggests a melodic style because uh -huh. he's playing three different uh, three different notes of a scale on three different strings, yep. utilizing both open strings and fretted strings. So um, he actually had a lot of flicks like that that sort of predate the melodic style. And in the book, there's an appendix that's got all of the uh, sort of almost melodic style licks that he had. Yeah, it's a really impressive book. Uh, I can't s state that enough. And if nothing else, I'm so, ha you know, I, I feel a lot of, uh, I don't know if regret's the right word, but people like Bill Emerson and Sonny Osborne, I was never able to interview for the show and, and it would, would have been nice. So seeing the fact that you were able to catch up with them near the end of their lives to get their input on, on banjo in general and, and about Rudy, like that's just so cool that you're able to do that. Yeah. It was to get to talk with them was really a great honor. And um, the, the two of them especially, but everyone I spoke with for the, the project um, were just so generous and so gracious. And they all had the same things to say about Rudy. They all sung his praises and, and they all said it's time for him to get his, his due credit. Yeah. And, you know, even beyond the banjo playing, there's just some fascinating stories. Uh, you know, one that I, that really jumped out to me was he apparently, did he kill someone from the stage? He uh, did. And it, it was a justifiable killing. It was like uh, someone who was <laughs> causing, uh, maybe had a, had a gun in the audience or I, yeah. I don't know, you can relay the story, but I was like, oh my God, like, I, you can't make this stuff it's up. It's larger than life. It really is. Yeah. He, Rudy was performing on the Grand Old Opry in the fifties with Bill Monroe and uh, so was little Jimmy Dickens. Mm -hmm. Not with Bill, but, you know, as his own act. Well, Rudy and uh, little Jimmy Dickens' wife, Connie, they fell in love. Mm. And um, in Bill Emerson's words, they absconded. Okay. <laughs> they ran off together. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, little Jimmy Dickens didn't like that very much. I imagine not. <laughs> <laughs> he actually hired the... the uh, this sort of Nashville mafia. Oh, wow. To kill Rudy Lyle. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, Rudy had fought in the Korean War and uh, carried a gun with him. And he got a tip from the bartender, the place he was playing that night, mm -hmm. that he was going to be seeing some action. And he knew what that meant, apparently. He knew what that meant. It was understood. That's incredible. And, and, and Rudy drew first. Rudy, essentially. Yeah, Rudy drew first. Rudy hid the gun in the drum case, and they're up there playing, and he sees this biker come in, lock eyes with him, and Rudy knew what was about to happen, so Rudy slides down onto his knees, grabs the gun, and shoots first. I mean, it's, a it's actually a terrible thing, 
you know. Oh, right. But <laughs> but just hearing the story of it is like, yeah, incredible. Can't even imagine yeah. being in that situation. So, yeah, yeah. Wow. So uh, fortunately for Rudy, it was uh, ruled an act of self-defense. Right. And uh, so he didn't have to serve any time. But um, he did work at the women's prison in Nashville after that. That was that was his sentence, basically. His community to, service. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was working as an administrator there. And uh, I think it was actually a good job for him. Uh, something he did the rest of his life. And uh, yeah, I think he enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so I won't spoil I- any of the rest of the book. People should read it themselves. But yeah, there's, there's some stories like that. He's a interesting character somewhat tormented kind of dude yeah um and yeah that's it's it's worth a read for sure so after after having put in all this research do you think you would you describe yourself as a rudy lyle style of player is that is that how you play personally yeah i guess so to to an extent you know i've i've learned all his breaks so i have i have him in my blood you know right i've got his licks down now and um you know, I, I certainly resonate with his approach to playing. He's he's got a a special emotional quality in his playing that I I resonate with. But you know, I try to do my best to uh, to play the notes that I hear, and it's certainly informed by Rudy's playing. It's also informed by all the other guys too. But yeah, but yeah, I, I think I I've got a bunch of those Rudy licks in my in my playing for yeah. sure. Yeah kind of can't help but come out you know yeah let's talk about your your gear tell me about your instrument and and all the you know all the parts all the bridges and and picks that banjo players like to hear about yeah yeah let's this is the fun part here this banjo is a 1927 tenor granada conversion mm-hmm. frank neat did the conversion not a tenor conversion by the way <laughs> well Depending on where you are, yeah. <laughs> tenor or tinner. Yeah. Um, Frank Neat built the neck. It's got a Brazilian rosewood fretboard. It's got uh, Frank Neat built the bridge too. I've tried probably a hundred bridges on this thing. Hmm. I made some bridges and tried it on yeah. here. I made some replicas of this Frank Neat bridge. I tried everything, and the Frank Neat bridge sounds the best. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So let's see. Do you know see. what tone ring it has? Uh huh. Yeah, I got the rim cut for a Blaylock 20-hole gold tone ring. Great. Yeah, I've got a... I'm keeping an eye out for a, some kind of repro Granada tailpiece. Right now I've just got a tailpiece here. I think it's from an old-style three pre-war banjo. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I'd like to get a gold one. And uh, let's see. Yeah, I got the old Oval 8s for finger picks. Yeah. Love these. And, again, you know, tried all the... Tried all the new ones. Some of them sound great, but none as good as the old Ovalates. Are you able to describe what the difference is between those and maybe the best replicas? That's a good question. I find that these these old ones have a certain fullness hmm. that the um, that the newer ones don't quite have. Interesting. And you know, I don't know why that is, but um, Gabe Hirschfeld told me that uh, it's possibly because they they were making these old picks out of radioactive materials. <laughs> and is he joking when he says that, or does he really think oh, that? Oh, we'll have to ask him. <laughs> so I might be getting some radiation in my fingertips here, but it's suffer for tone. Oh, man. It's, yeah, that's, that's funny. <laughs> um, anything else you use, like, for on stage? Is there a particular microphone you like, or... or- I play into whatever they put in front of me. Yeah. Try to, I mean, you know, you know how it is with banjo. There's just so many variables and it's so easy to slip down that slope. So it sure is. especially on stage, I just try to focus on the tone in my right hand. Uh, speaking of how you play on stage, you're one of these like one shoulder strap, uh, you know, strap only over your right shoulder kind yeah. of guys. How, how did, uh, how did that happen? And I don't know. That's it's it's unusual at this point to see people who still do that. So yeah. I don't know. Talk about that. I saw a talk that Bela Fleck gave, and he mentioned the the shoulder and the strap, and he said, you know, it's it's better in most ways to wear it over your left shoulder. It's more ergonomic. You have more freedom with your hands. 
But he did say that if you want that old sound, that old Earl Scruggs type sound, that sometimes he, he'll wear it on his right shoulder to get that sound. Wow. He thinks there's a tone difference. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And is that because less of the resonator is pressed against your body? Uh, that could be. I think a lot of it has to do with the ergonomics of the right hand. When you're wearing the, sh the strap over the right shoulder, you kind of have to press the banjo against you with your forearm. Yeah. It's, it's more unstable, the banjo is. Uh -huh. And so you have to get this... There's a certain tightness that, that comes. Hopefully not like a bad tightness, but um, the, there are different muscles that are being activated when you're holding the banjo to play that way. Yeah. And uh, it, it definitely changes the sound. It's a subtle thing. Wow. But, um, but you know, there's also one of the things that, um, that Peter and I get to, get to share, and uh, Chris Henry as well, is um, Peter's into Tibetan Buddhism. Okay. And, uh, and Chris Henry and I, when we're on the road, we sometimes get to be like uh, students of, of Peter in a spiritual sense. Okay. And there's this idea in Tibetan Buddhism of, um, in, you know, there's all these deities. Hmm. And there's all these meditative techniques where you envision yourself as the deity. And it's considered to be a really direct path to where you're trying to go spiritually. And I, I think there's something special and something really beautiful about taking on the form of of the greats. So we look I think at I see where you're going with this. Yeah, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, we look at Earl, Sonny, Rudy, Don Reno, uh, Ralph Stanton. We look at any of these early bluegrass banjo players, and they've all got their straps on the right shoulder. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think, you know, there's something special about. Uh, sort of emulating that form if you want to really try to get at the, the heart of what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. It's a little out there, but I think there's something to it. You yeah, know? yeah. And another thing, this is, this is getting super nerdy, and mm -hmm. maybe this was a conscious deci decision on your part, maybe not. I also noticed that you, you do rest two fingers on the head, but your pinky and your ring finger are a bit more spread apart than a lot of players. Oh, are they? Who I see. I think so. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's most, good to I know. I think most people, I think I see them with them basically together. Oh, um, really? Where yeah. you kind of have, almost looks more like a tripod kind of, uh, huh. you know. Yeah. You didn't know that? No, thanks for letting me oh, know. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I hope I'm not going to give you a, a complex about, <laughs> yeah. about how to hold your, hold your hand now. Yeah, no, but it's I didn't know if there was... Uh, any any thought behind that or not? No, that's subconscious. Okay. I haven't thought about that. That's just where the fingers go. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know, man. Anything else you'd like to, to say about your playing? Obviously, you should let people know how to like find your book and find your music with websites or whatever they need to know about that. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Definitely open floor to say anything else about your, your journey or your career or your, or your playing style. Yeah, well, the book can be purchased on my website, which is my name, maxwareham.com, M-A-X-W-A-R-E-H-A-M.com. That's the best place to buy it. Um, I'm doing a series of um, videos of Rudy's Breaks. Oh, cool. Because, um, you know, Banjo Tab is pretty abstract. Um, getting to actually see someone playing the breaks is a much more immediate way of experiencing them. Not everyone reads Banjo Tab as well. So, anyway, yeah, that's on my website. Uh, it's a slow process because some of those breaks are pretty challenging to play. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I'm filming videos and putting them up there weekly or bi weekly. Also, sharing those videos on my Instagram, which is uh, Max Wareham Plays Banjo. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just been such an honor to, to write this book and to get to connect with some of the masters. And it's really. A special thing to be able to try to elevate Rudy Lyle, try to give someone credit where it's due. I mean, I'm overwhelmed by the by all the honor. It's an honor to get to play with Peter and uh, and also to talk with you today and be on your podcast. Yeah, likewise, so, man. Feelings feelings mutual. I really appreciate you making the time. I know it's not the easiest uh, situation to schedule yourself around, so I'm glad we could make it work. Likewise, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, man. Thank you, Keith.
Thanks for tuning in, folks. Those sound clips that you heard were Frog on the Lily Pad by Peter Rowan, Beating Around the Bush by Bill Keith, From My Mountain by Peter Rowan featuring Molly Tuttle and Lindsay Liu, and then In the Pines and Rawhide, both by Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys. Thank you once again to Tim Burns. He is this episode's Patreon supporter of the episode. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself or to get that meeting link for all to enter the December VIP lounge, which is happening December 28th. That's a Wednesday, and that's going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So I hope to see you all there and hope to see you all next time for the next episode. Take care, everybody. <laughs>